Good morning. <coughs> Hope everybody is doing well today. A couple things I want to make sure you've got in front of you. We've got Bibles in the back on the table. If, if you don't have one with you, you're going to need your Bible this morning. You're also going to need some notes, and the notes is also back there on the table. We've got front and back. Uh, sort of the way um, that we, as, as, as I, us as congregationally, the way we work through God's Word is expositionally. Uh, in other words, I don't pick the text. I preached through books of the Bible, and this morning we're at Genesis 27. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so we've been letting the narrative unfold week after week as it builds on each other. I uh, encourage you to go to our website. It's on our info guide and catch up if you've missed some. This is a time of the year where there's a lot of vacations and, and things going on, and, and uh, you can do that directly from our website. So let's just remember, though, from the very beginning, let's tie some things together, especially two things. Because if you miss this, and oftentimes we've studied the Old Testament uh, in a very moralistic way, getting these good little moral principles and these little nuggets that we that we grab, but we need to understand something this morning. And so we begin in the beginning when God created man, He created it perfect, to live in relationship to Him, to live under His authority. Man sinned. And so in Genesis 3.15, it is where this thread of redemption, this promise of what man broke, man's going to have to fix, man can't fix it, so God's going to have to become flesh and He's going to dwell among us. And so Genesis 3.15 is, is where we see the promised seed's going to come through a woman, and so we tie that thread of redemption there. And then Galatians 3.16 told us, remember we looked at that last week, that the seed is Christ. He's the fulfillment of the promised seed. And so that thread of redemption that goes through all of, of history and all through Scripture then is tied at the cross. And what we've been looking at for the last few weeks it is, is that God is not just sovereign over that point and that point. He is sovereign over everything in the middle. Everything is serving to accomplish His purpose. So God's plan this morning cannot be hindered. God has an unhindered plan, and so we see it come in this timeline through a man named Abraham. God blessed him. God made a covenant with Abraham, and yet we see Abraham and Sarah had a problem. They didn't have, couldn't have children. And so for, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21, we see this life of a man with a promise and no way to fulfill it. And so Genesis 21, 1 and 2 God opens the womb of Sarah supernaturally and they bring forth Isaac. And so when we hit chapter 25, remember, Abraham is dead. The ball, so to speak, is passed on to Isaac. God gives him Rebekah, but remember, same problem. Barren womb, no children. 20 years. So through the prayers of God's people. He supernaturally moves on Rebecca. She has two sons, remember? Remember the conflict that began in the womb. God speaks what's happening. Something wrong. God says, two nations are in your womb. And He made a sovereign decree, remember? I, by my own choice, 
I, am, I choose the younger to carry on the seed. The younger, the older will serve the younger. Completely flipping down the natural order. We see this conflict didn't go away in the womb. It only got worse as they grew up and become men and ended up with Jacob deceiving Esau and taking his birthright. Esau selling his birthright, his spiritual heritage, his spiritual, his, his actual inheritance for a bowl of soup. In Genesis 25, verse 34, it says, by doing this, Esau despised his birthright. He considered it of no value. The scene switches back, remember, in Genesis 26, as it switches back to Isaac, and we see God's blessing on God's chosen man, despite his sin that looks exactly like his father's, committing the exact same deception. It seems like deception is a family tradition, as we'll see today, and it's not going to end. Deception will be our running theme for some, while, some time, because this is the narrative. Despite that, here's what we see. Everything that Isaac touches, God blesses. Not because of him, but because God has made a promise that through this line, his promises will be fulfilled. The seed will come. And so that's just what we see happening. And then we have this sad reality check that not only Esau sells his birthright to his younger brother, but in Genesis 26 and verse 34 even though he knows it is against his father's wishes as the patriarch of the family, he marries two Hittite women. In verse 35, it says, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau effectively disinherits himself at this point by marrying outside of God's covenant people. Remember we saw this before with Abraham and Isaac and Picking Rebekah, his kinsman, as a wife. Esau didn't care. And so this morning it's the story of a family that fragments over the pursuit of spiritual blessings. And yet, Proverbs 19.21 is true. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So we clearly want to see this morning that God's plan is unhindered despite the reality of human deception. And God's plan is unhindered despite the real consequences of human deception. We're going to see both of them. Human deception at its finest or its worst and the consequences that flow with it. Even consequences that run generational. Reality this morning is as it has over the last couple weeks. This sermon is bound to cause questions, and that's fine, and I ask you to stay with the narrative. Stay with the story. I know that we're going to ask questions like, are we saying that the ends justify the means, or did the blessings of God is won through deception? I don't get that. used a different illustration in first service. Give me a couple of minutes. This one's a little personal. When we were in uh, Congo uh, 
trying to bring our children home. God eventually allowed us to bring home. We stayed in an in a apartment, sort of confined to that apartment, and we roomed with another friend and brother in Christ that was trying to get his little son home. His son's home was actually, his son's name was actually Elvis. He called him Oliver Elvis. And, uh, but they had a problem. You see, their, their lawyer had quit the adoption agency and had all the dossiers that he was dealing with and was holding them for ransom. Systematically blackmailing the adoptive parents one at a time, which he, which he did to our friend. And so we, one day, I think it was one Sunday morning, we, Christina got all the kids and locked them in the back room and he didn't know it, but I had my little iPod over, my, my iPad over there recording this whole event as we set up a meet in our apartment and these two lawyers, the good lawyer that had replaced the bad lawyer, came in at the same time, drove the same cab to our apartment. One had the dossier and the other didn't. And we had this whole encounter that went from 3000 to 1500 And here was this confusing moment when the, the, their money changed hands and and our, my friend had his dossier in his hand. He had to hand it to the other lawyer. It was this confusing moment. Of course, you see, they came in together. One was the bad lawyer. One was the good lawyer. And so he literally gives it, hands it, and they leave together. And we all just stood there after the word scratching our head saying, what exactly just happened? And we realized... Sort of the Wizard of Odd moment that we weren't in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and uh, that we honestly, and he felt that way, we did too. We didn't know how God was going to work through such a mess of deception. Questions. This is the real reality of the people of God who were originally reading this text. You see, they had many enemies that plagued them, one of which was the Edomites. You see, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. They were plaguing the original audience. Remember, they plagued them from the minute they came out of Egypt. And all through their history. So, you ever had a problem? You ever had such a mess of deception in and, and just the heart of your life that you can't see around? This was God's people. It's an important message for them today. It's an important message for us. See, blessings... The blessing is in this text, this word, 22 times. It's the point. Who's going to receive it? It's what the original audience is looking at as God's people, with the enemies against them at every moment, one of which was the descendant of the man their eyes are locked on, not only Jacob, but also Esau. So what we want to see this morning is this. That both they as God's people and us as God's new covenant people need to gain hope this morning that God's plan is unhindered despite the reality of human deception. It's real, you see, and here's this, the reality of this dysfunctional family. We never see this family all together. Matter of fact, if this was a play, we're going to lay this out in your notes, you'll notice we've got scenes. There's actually six, six scenes in this drama. We're going to look at five of them this morning. But they're never together. Jacob and Esau never talk during this time. They never meet each other. And so as the first scene unfolds, 
between Isaac and Esau. Understand Isaac is around 100 years old. Esau is about 40. Look at verse 1. Chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his brother and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out in the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat and that my soul may be blessed before I die. So we see very clearly here that as far as Isaac was concerned, Isaac desired to bless who? Esau. And we know in our minds, hold on a second, he had already entered into a Oath. Remember, oaths are important in the Bible. He's already entered into an oath with Jacob. He's already sold his birthright. How? So turn with me to Hebrews 12. I want you to see this. There's a lot we could say about the passage of Hebrews. We don't have time to look at it all over this morning. I just want you to see this. <coughs> Hebrews 12 and verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so we're going to see Esau trying to separate the birthright from the blessing. And though he had sold this, he still wanted to gain that. Yet Hebrews says these things are connected. They are inseparable. And so, the reality is that Esau has forfeited the blessing because he sold the birthright. But that's not Isaac and Esau's fault. So, where's the deception in this first scene? You see, Esau's deception is that he knows that he sold the birthright. He also knows very well, and so does his family, that he has intermarried with the Hittites outside of God's covenant people. And yeah, what does he want? He wants what he thinks he deserves. Remember, Esau was a man who lived off the end of his own nose. He simply wanted what he wanted at the time that he wanted it. Though he had never considered God's calling, he never considered God's promises special worthy of his life, yet now he desired it. But Isaac's deception. Think about this, a man 100 years old. He knew the oracle of God. He knew what God had said. He knew that God had said the older is going to serve the younger. The younger, Jacob, is going to be the promised one. And yet, what does he do? He intentionally tries to thwart this plan by blessing Esau instead. Isaac, in a way, not only is he physically blind, but he's got other blinders on too, doesn't he? Neglecting the fact of not only what God... Both of these men in this scene attempt to thwart God's plan. Their goal, give the blessing, get the blessing. That's our goal, that's what we're going to do it. So he sends Esau out to hunt. This little perverted sinful, appetite-driven of Isaac. Remember, he always said, I love, they loved Esau. Why? Because he made that 
good game that he liked to eat. So he sends him out. Go make my favorite dish, and then I'll bless you. He sends him out. He didn't know. Rebecca's listening. She's got her ear on the tent. And so as this scene closes, the second scene opens up in verse 5 of this conversation with Rebecca and Jacob. So Rebecca hears. She goes back. Verse 5, Now Rebecca was listening, and when Isaac spoke to his son Esau, so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it. So he, Esau goes out to hunt, and she, she goes to it. We've got to fix this. There's a problem. I'm going to bless Esau. I'm not going to have that. So verse 9, she, gives, she starts her plan. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I might prepare for them delicious food for your, father, for your father, such as he loves. You shall bring it to your father to eat, so he will bless you before he dies. What you see here is no communication between Isaac and Rebekah. What is ruling this relationship, what is ruling this family is favoritism. Favoritism has ruled it. Now it has grown into full-out deception. It is just what James says happens. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then those desires, when it conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so we see clearly Rebecca's deception. Pretty obvious. Her deceptive plan, replace Esau while he's hunting. I'm going to replace him. Bring me the goats. I'll spice these, this meat up. He'll never know the difference. He's blind. We'll deceive him. Her goal, Jacob's going to have the blessing. We're going to ensure it. You see, the first scene, they sought to thwart it. The second scene, we thought to ensure it. God needs our help. We're going to make sure that this plan comes to place. Something bad's going to happen. I can feel it. I don't know if you've ever noticed Mama, but me and Esau, not exactly, we don't exactly look the same. We don't smell the same. <laughs> you, don't, you, can, you can tell from a quarter mile away who, which, that Esau's coming. He's the man of the field. He's concerned. Verse 11, but Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is hairy and I'm smooth. Perhaps my father will fill me in going to say I'm mocking him and he's going to curse he's going to give me a curse not a blessing mom you know what his mama said in Rebecca in verse 13 his mother said let the curse be on me my son in other words curse be on me just shut up and do what I say he said yes ma'am exactly what he did so Jacob buys into the deception he goes to it in verse 14 so he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved now that's a repeating she knew how to deceive her own husband. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which was with her in the house, and put them on the younger son. And then the skin of the goats she put on his hands. So he puts hairy skin on his hands. He puts it on the smooth parts of his neck in verse 16. And then she puts the delicious food and the bread she had prepared, and she puts it in her son's hand, and he takes it. So we see this moment, this deceptive substitute is in place. And as the second scene closes, the third scene comes up. And now Jacob is in the tent with Isaac. Verse 18, 
So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? So now we see the deceptor in all his splendor. Two main deceptive lies. First is his own identity. Verse 19 is clear. He asked him in 18. Jacob says to his father, verse 19, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But remember, Isaac's blind. Who is this? When he answers, he says, eh, it sounds like Jacob. I can't see him, but I can hear him. And he's confused. You see, hunting is a patient man's sport. It's not like you can go to the grocery store and, you know, bring a deer. <laughs> you had to go out and hunt it. You had to wait for it. You had to kill it. And you had to do everything that was necessary to put that meat in that plate and bring it to him. It takes time. And yet there he was. And look at the second deception that Jacob brings in verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, How is it you found it so quickly? And he, he answered him, Because the Lord your God granted me success. In other words, Jacob blatantly blasphemed God by ascribing something to God that was none other than a bunch of lies. Serious. Isaac wasn't convinced. Still doubting. Look at verse 24. He said, are you really my son? He answered him, I am. Imagine he's getting a little nervous. Jacob's getting a little nervous right now. So, <laughs> Isaac does. You ever seen that scratch and sniff? He does sort of the scratch and sniff test on his eyes. Your voice don't, it's not convincing me. So verse 26, and his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and blessed him and said. And so he feels his hands. He tells him, come over here and kiss me. And so Isaac, he does, Jacob does, and he smells him. Ah, <laughs> I can smell him now. That's him. It's ironic, isn't it? In verse 27, Jacob deceives his father with a kiss. Talk about more about that later. So Isaac, the bait is set. He bites. He literally... And he gets up, he eats, he blesses. Three parts to this blessing. Look at verse 28. May God give you the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blesses everyone who blesses you. You see the three parts. The first is fertility of the field. This is wealth and prosperity in that day. If your crops grow and your, and your, and your animals multiply, you're, you're rich. The second is political supremacy. We've seen this all through the patriarchs, haven't we? And we're going to keep seeing it. Not only does their own family recognize, will recognize him as a patriarch, even his enemies and the people that he dwells and the strangers will recognize God's blessing this man. We want, to, we want to be friends with him. But the important part here is at this moment, he's just made Esau a servant of who? Jacob. Not only that, but Genesis 12 resounds as we hear almost the exact same words. If people curse you, they are cursed. If people bless you, they are blessed. So this is protection. This is the promise. Now, that is to the younger son. And so we, this point, we 
scratch our head and says, it seems like the deceiver is successful. He walks away with the blessing. Yet the narrator was going to want us to understand and will see that Jacob and Rebekah gained nothing but lost much. And you say, well, hold on a second. They gained the blessing. God had already promised him the birthright. He gained nothing on his own. But what he caused was some consequences. These consequences would be lifelong. He lost much. And so we ask the question, does God then approve of deception? Exodus 20.16, where we get God's commands for His people that shows them how to live in right relationship with God and a relationship with man, says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is what God's Word has revealed. But listen, God has already spoken. Jacob is going to bear the promises. So we see clearly deception by every member of this dysfunctional family. Each one of these families looking after their own interest. What was their own interest? Their own favorite child. And yet, have they hindered God's plan? God's plan is unhindered despite human deception. And listen, God's plan is unhindered despite the consequences that come from human deception. And they come. Verse 30, as soon as... Isaac had finished blessing Jacob when Jacob had scarcely gone from the presence of Isaac, his father. Esau, his brother, comes in from hunting. In other words, Jacob's, Jacob's getting a little antsy. If he hurries up, finishes blessing, my brother's going to come in any minute. If he comes, it's going to be bad. So the, the scene in our mind is he, bears, he barely gets out of the tent and goes this way to Esau comes and comes in the other direction. And the fourth scene opens up of this emotional encounter between Isaac and Esau. Look at verse 31. Esau Esau had also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise, eat his son's game, and that, you, that, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And at this moment, the light comes on for Isaac. So here's him. I know that voice. I've got no doubt about that voice. And what we see in verse 33 is Isaac trembling. It says, he trembled very violently. He said, who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate before? You came and I have blessed him. Listen, yes, and he shall be blessed. In other words, I can't undo this. This is done. I've blessed him. He's blessed. <coughs> so listen, the blessing gained under deception only fulfilled exactly what God said was going to happen. And having heard this, Esau cries, I'm sure, a cry that could be heard for miles and verses 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he was taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is, his, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me two times. He took away my birthright, and now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved at least one blessing for me? 
Esau understands at this point the true nature of Jacob. And he says, you sure didn't name him right. Not only is he a heel grabber, he's a blatant deceiver. He stole my birthright and now he's got the blessing. Don't you have one? Verse 37, Isaac says, I've made him your Lord. And all his brothers. In other words, he said, what can I do for you? I've already blessed him. Verse 38 says, Esau wept. And he says, no, no, bless me. And almost as if Isaac wants to bless him, but what comes out of his mouth is an anti-blessing. Listen to what he says. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heavens on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. You see, the consequences now began to become clear. You see, yes, Jacob gained not only the blessing, but he also gained his brother's wrath. In verse 41, it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which was, his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning my father are approaching, and then I'm going to kill him. So Jacob's action brings lifelong consequences. Esau now vows, and remember, vows are important. Esau vows, I'm going to kill him as soon as my daddy dies. And so the fifth, the fourth scene closes. The fifth scene rises with Rebekah and Jacob. Rebekah has heard about it. Again, she doesn't miss anything going on in the family. And she's got another plan. But look at what it says at the end of verse 42. It says, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Be warned. Anger unresolved will turn to bitterness and it will destroy you. And so we see that he comforts himself by his plan to kill his brother. But Rebecca's plan reveals a lifelong consequence. In verse 43, now it's told him, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. So what's the plan? You're, because we have deceived him, your brother wants to kill you. He's going to kill you. And so what's the plan? You need to run, flee to Laban, my brother. Remember, who Laban is. We've got to talk about him still to come. So he says, Rebecca says, verse 44, only a while. Just, just go until your brother gets over it. So, what happens? 20 years happens. Listen, the consequence is that Jacob never sees his beloved mother again. He never feels her embrace. He never gets to see her. She will die while he's gone to Laban's. Not only that, Laban, he goes to a man that's just as deceptive as him, and Laban's going to get, get one over on him. And in the future, remember, it is his own sons that deceives him, 
And he lives under that deception that my own son is dead, remember? These have, deception has real consequences. But listen, it's not the point. It's not the point of the text. His point, clearly for God's people and for us this morning, is that God can use human deception to accomplish His divine purpose. Now I know that may bring us anxiety, but what we need to realize is that it brought God's original audience great comfort. That knowing that the very people that persecuted them, that, that always made life miserable for them, their very arch enemies would not have its day. You see, that God's people was still living under the consequence of, of Jacob's deception, and God says, I've got a plan, and that plan will not be hindered by Esau or his descendants. It brings him great anxiety, great comfort, not anxiety. God's plan cannot be hindered. It cannot be stopped. It can't be sped up or slowed down. God has a plan, and this is great comfort for God's people. Remember Proverbs 19. Many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of God that will stand. And so when we get through with this narrative now, we say, where's God in all this? Where's God? Number one, God's plan can't be hindered by the deception of man. Write this down. Man or Satan, either one, will only find himself accomplishing God's plan, not hindering it. And if we stumble this morning over this truth, let us stumble to the cross. Because it is at the cross that the greatest deception of all happened. So let's turn with us to Matthew. Matthew 26. Let us go as we turn there to the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus was praying, remember? Up, pass from me, but not my will, but yours. And he prayed two times. And so we pick up in verse 44, Matthew 26, verse 44. It says, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. So we see Jesus being deceived by one of the inner circle. One of his own people, the very one that he had invested his life into this man. Yet he deceived him and betrayed him with a kiss. What did Jesus have to say about Judas? Let's back up. Verse 24. Let's go back to the Passover. Verse 24. Hang with me. Son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, have been, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So let's just look at the text and ask a couple of questions. 
the Son of Man goes. Where's the Son of Man going? Going to the cross. As it is written of Him, where had it been written? It had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So what is He saying? The Son of Man is going to be killed just like it's been prophesied. But, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And listen, woe in the Bible is not a good thing. A sign of judgment, of damnation. He's going to the cross. So what is he saying? I'm going to be killed just like was planned. But woe to the one who, who betrays me. And this is not, that's only the beginning of the deception. As that night unfolds, look at verse 59 and 60. We see false witnesses. We see the most religious people of the day joining in the deception. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council, listen, were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Why? That they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And so we see more deception by the most religious people of the day. All of them had one goal, kill him. And not only that, Matthew 27, if we flip over verse 24, we see Pilate's part in the deception. So when Pilate saw, verse, chapter 27, verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he gained nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourself. And all the people said, His blood be on us and our children. Then He released them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, He delivered them to be crucified. But make no mistake, Pilate, knowing that Jesus was innocent, condemned Him anyway. This was the deception. So Jesus would die just as planned. So do we see this? Didn't God use Judas the false witnesses, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, all their willful deceit, their willful deception to accomplish His preordained divine purpose of redemption. This is what we see. Peter thought so. Peter did. In Acts 2, 22, standing up, preaching to the very people that had yelled, crucify Him in the town where it happened, said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by... God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Listen, look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was impossible for Him to be healed. What was He saying? God is sovereign but you're responsible and you better repent because God's raised him up and he's sitting on a throne. And they did. Micah read just a minute ago in Acts 4, 27. It says, For truly in this city you are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, to whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this morning, I don't know if this will help you. If, if it doesn't, spit it out. 
Just an illustration. Imagine there is a great mountain. And up at that summit, and you see there is a rope that's tied off at the summit and extends down this mountain. Many mountaineers are ascending this rope, and so you believe yourself and you desire to be that mountaineer to get to the summit, to experience the summit. So you begin, and it's not long before you realize there's knots on this rope. There's knots tied. You get to the first knot. And though many in front of you, many behind you keep ascending the rope, yet you stop. And here's your question. Why is it not there? Knot shouldn't really be there. That bothers me why that knot is there. And so you spend your time at the bottom of the mountain trying to untie the knot. Brothers and sisters, the rope is God's Word. The summit is the very presence of God. And these knots that we come to in God's Word are the very character and attributes and actions of God. They are big, they are weighty, and they are inscrutable, but they are God. And we must not waste our time trying to untie the knot. Many of us have spent 10 and 20 years staring at a knot and not trying to see the very presence of God. God's people that are reading this text at that time with clinging on to it. Those knots are put there by God for your good. God is not us. We are God and we can out of the cross and answer that question. Can God's plan of redemption be frustrated? And if the biggest thing in re- redemptive history hindered me, it's great hope. But in closing, let me just end with this thought. I challenge you this afternoon to read 2 Corinthians in this context. Paul was unstoppable by me, for many reasons. Though many people tried to stop him. And Paul would say, I'm a slave of Christ. Jesus is Lord. And he has given me a message of the gospel. And I will not change it. I will not water it down. I will not twist it for the benefit of myself or to make it more palatable to the masses, because it is God's Word that always produces what it desires to produce. God's plan and God's message never comes back void. And for us, New Testament believers who believe it this morning, it gives us confidence. Not only to to exist, but to thrive. Because we've been given a message. And this message never fails. It always produces something. Here's what Paul realizes. Here's why you couldn't stop Paul. Paul says, I don't produce it. I don't produce it. I'm not responsible for saving anyone. And so I don't have to try to force false conversions. I simply must present God's gospel in truth and let God do His work. Unleash that in our lives. Unleash that in our communities. 
Just simply declare God's word to anyone and to everyone that God puts in your path and let him do the supernatural worth. Hasn't he done it in scripture? Didn't he do it at the cross? And will he not do it with our todays and our tomorrows? Lord, this is your story. These stories are not made up to teach us some moral truth. These are the actual lives of your people. And so, Lord, we don't wink at their failures. We see ourselves in these failures. And we ask sometimes, Lord, have I messed up so bad that there's no hope for me? Thank you for the gospel this morning that cries out to us, yes, there's hope for you. There's hope for us. Lord, as Chris was speaking to the graduates of whom his vested his very life, and the bittersweet moment, I'm so grateful. You saved a redneck from Bessemer City. An old machinist from Gastonia. And a repo man from Charlotte. Called him to yourself. And now, you let us serve you. This is God. The God that uses the least to proclaim His message. Thank you, Lord. You are a mighty Savior, for you have saved us. You have called us to be your people. So Lord, now we respond as we stand to our feet and we sing of our sovereign King who has saved us and has told us a promise. Just like I left. One day I will come and I will bring you to me. And those who have gone before us, who are right now worshiping Him, we will join them in their worship, in their service. And there we will forever be with our Lord. And God's people say, Amen. Stand with us and sing.